I ain't gonna lie, I got a little bit of jitters, okay? I've, I've had about 48 hours to get this ready, so I had something uh, a little bit in the back pocket, but uh, we honed it down, and I think I'm ready here. So I get the privilege of launching a series for Pastor Tracy. So what we're going to start today is talking about the pillars of revival. And fortunately, since I'm not the lead pastor, I get to step on toes and have no consequences for it. So today, we're going to talk about you and me as well. I'm part of that you, so I'm not like you guys, not me. You. We're talking about you. So first off, a few years ago, some of you guys might remember this, Pastor Darlene was speaking, uh, prophesying over the church that there's a spirit of revival, spirit of revival here at Crossroads. In this region, she was talking about revival coming to the region, and we had a few people come to the church, and they, they, they felt it on their spirit, too. There's a spirit of revival in this region. There's a spirit of revival in Crossroads. And I love the idea of revival. And uh, we all may be sitting here at church this morning, and we're like, wow, I think our church does pretty good, you know? We're, I think we're, we're doing well. I think we got revival spirit in us, maybe. And if I'm going to venture to say that if you're content with where we're at, then you're probably in need of a revival. And the reason why I say that is because whenever we become content, that's where the enemy wants to see us. He wants to see us content in our walk. And I say that because I think as a Christian, when you're in your walk, you should be uncomfortable a lot. And you should find yourself, I'm not saying all the time, but frequently finding yourself maybe stepping out of your comfort zone and witnessing to somebody. Stepping out of your comfort zone and praying for somebody. Stepping out of your comfort zone and just edifying somebody. And in today's culture, I feel like we are a very uh, behind-the-doors, behind-the-scenes kind of culture where we just don't really go out and talk to people a lot. If it's not done on social media, um, which I think social media is a terrible place to try to edify people sometimes because that face-to-face, there's something personal about it, you know? I mean, the Bible never talks about, you know, just not communing with God, but get face-to-face with Him, and you're thinking, well, how do I get face-to-face with God whenever He's up there? You'll get your alone time. You'll experience it. It's pretty cool. But like I said, if you're looking left and right and you're thinking, we're good, we probably need revival. And I would venture to guess, let's, let's think about this, our church, if you look left and right right now, I'm pretty sure you could probably point out somebody you don't know in the church, right? And I'm just as guilty. We've got a lot of new faces here. I'll give it that. And if you've been here for, for any period of time, there are dozens and dozens of new faces in this church. And I'm so thankful for it. But I'm just as guilty as the next. I don't know probably 30, 40% of the people by name, first and last, and personally in this church. Now, it's, it's impossible, I, was, I wouldn't say impossible, to get to know everybody's name. Now, Pastor Tracy is very good at names, okay? I am terrible at it. You don't believe me, ask Rayanne Cox over here, okay? She was a victim of about three years. Her and her sister attended youth group, and it took me three years to get Vanessa and Rayanne separated, and I just couldn't do it. I'm, I'm terrible at names, so... Anyways, so we're going to dive in, and the first topic, I want to hit two topics today, and do my best here to uh, maybe give you some uh, ammo to start a revival within yourself. This isn't about, today's not about you going out and reviving the community or stuff like that. This is about you. This is your personal revival. And the first topic I'm going to talk about today is faith. And I'm going to jump into some scripture right out the gate. So Matthew chapter 14, 22, a lot of you know this story, it's the story of Peter. So immediately Jesus made his disciples get into a boat and go before him to the other side while he sent the multitudes away. 
And when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up to the mountain by himself and prayed. Now when the evening came, he was alone there. <laughs> the next slide. I was hoping the next slide. There it is. But, but the boat was now in the middle of the sea, and it was tossed by the waves, for the wind was contrary. This is New King James Version, by the way, if you're, if you're a certain type of Bible reader. Now in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went to them, walking on the sea, and when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, It is a ghost. And they cried out for fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Be of good cheer, it is I. Do not be afraid. Could you imagine somebody telling you to be of good cheer when you're petrified? I don't know how I'd respond to that. Like, oh yeah, I'm just happy. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, Come. And when Peter had come down out of the boat, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. It's pretty incredible. But when he saw that the wind was boisterous, he was afraid. And he began to sink, and he cried out, saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and caught him. And he said to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? I really like that scripture. And it, I don't know if any of you guys have ever seen that painting. I wish I would have gotten a, a picture of it. But there's a painting where you're seeing through the lens or the eyes of Peter and you're sunk in the water and you're reaching up and you see the silhouette through the water of Jesus' hand coming through and grabbing you. And one day I'm going to actually do this. I'm going to buy that painting and it's going to hang up in my house because it's a constant reminder that no matter what I'm doing, Jesus will be there to lift me back up in my troubled times. So, but all right. So I want to look at a couple verses here. We're going to look first at verse 28 and 29. All right, I want to read that again real quick. So let me pull up. Here we go. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And so he said, come. And when Peter had come down out of the boat, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. Now, aside from Peter and Jesus, who else walked on water? And animals don't count, okay? I, I don't really recall anybody that walked on water. So this kind of makes me think about our faith. When we first come to Jesus, who remembers when they first came to Jesus? A lot of you do. I mean, you had such, you were probably filled with all kinds of zeal, some vigor and confidence, and you could tell everybody about Jesus, and nobody was going to, you know, squelch that. You know, you, you were just, you were a spitting ball of fire, ready to go. For me, for instance, whenever I truly gave my heart to Jesus, um, I had a buddy in the Marines um, who led me to Jesus. Some of you have heard this before. And uh, I remember the day that I, legitimately, and I say legitimately because I faked church a lot when I was young, but when I legitimately gave my heart to Jesus, I was in 2008, June 2008, we were in a city called, or a town called Bridgeport, California with the Marines, and if any Marines in here know where Bridgeport's at, uh, during the day in the summer, it's 95 degrees, but at night, it gets down to freezing temperatures because we're in the mountains, so we were doing a cold water crossing that day, so we went up the mountain, in Bridgeport, and you see snow caps about 200 feet above you, and there's a river that runs down this mountain, and that's where we did our cold water crossing. So it was rather, rather frigid waters. And my buddy TJ, he recently led me to Jesus, and I gave my life to Christ, and he goes, hey man, you need to get baptized. You really need to get baptized. You need to make that public profession of your faith. And I'm like, bro, it's a bunch of Marines. <laughs> They're going to make fun of me. He goes, who cares? It's about you and Jesus. And I'm like, all right, all right. The water's cold, though. The water is so cold. And he goes, I know. We just crossed it. He's like, you're already wet. Get back in. 
And I'm like, bro, I'm trying to find every excuse not to do this. But then TJ, of course, with his wonderful persistence, encourages me to get into the frigid waters and make a public profession of my faith right there. And I got baptized. Amen. Amen. And uh, came out of that water. And I don't know, it's just something about that moment that like whenever the enemy tries to tell you no, and you step on the enemy and you just say, no, I'm going to do this. And you do it. You come out of that. I came out of that water different. I don't know how to explain it. Like, I came out different, right? And there was nothing that was going to stop me at that moment. I came out and I had Marines right out the gate. Oh, good job, Lachlan. See how long this lasts. We know you, buddy. I'm like, yeah, you knew me. You knew me. But there is a new me that just came out of that water. So a few, uh, a few months later, we ended up deploying to Iraq. And during that time, um, we held Bible studies. Me and TJ did. We held Bible studies almost twice a week, Tuesdays and Thursday nights. We were lay leaders for the chaplain, um, a platoon of Marines, which is what I was with. We have about 30 to 40 Marines. And on average, on those Tuesdays and Thursday nights, we would have 15 to 20 people involved in these Bible studies. A quarter of our platoon is sitting in the Bible study hearing about Jesus. And the super cool thing about that was that we didn't care what anybody thought. We had superiors coming in, like, what's this big gaggle in the middle of the barracks? It's a hazard. They make up all kinds of excuses to try to tear up our little Bible studies. Or like, hey, we got training we got to do, clear the way. And we would all just huddle in between two racks, which you have literally about this much space between two sets of bunk beds. And we would have our Bible studies sitting on the bunks, top and bottom. And great things came from that. We had one guy that was the most arrogant man you'd ever meet in your life come to Jesus. The crazy thing was, he never attended a single Bible study. He came over to the Bible study one day, leans up against the wall, maybe 30 seconds, walks away. And some of you guys heard this story a few years ago. And I looked at TJ, I'm like, buddy, I think I got to talk to this guy. And I went and talked to him, and I wouldn't say maybe three words like, hey, man, I feel like Jesus wanted me to talk to you. And he just starts crying. And he gives his life to Jesus, in short. And if you knew the whole story in this guy, to this day, we're still friends. We weren't friends before this, but we are now. But what I'm saying, though, is like this moment when Peter comes out of the boat, he's so confident. He's so ready. He's so trusting in Jesus. Same way I was in that day. And probably the same way you guys were like, nothing could slow you down. You were the ambassador to the kingdom, and nobody's stopping you. So then we jump to verse 30. And those waves were crashing around. Let's read that the scripture real quick. But when he saw that the wind was boisterous and he was afraid and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. The waves were crashing around Peter. Now, I want you to recognize something in that scripture real quick. It says in verse 30, the, waves, the wind was boisterous, which was creating waves. But if you go back to the beginning of these scriptures, it was doing the same thing beforehand. There was still wind, and there were still waves before Jesus called him out of the boat, right? What has changed? Nothing, except Jesus has called you out of the boat. Now, Peter's walking, he hears the wind, and he takes his eyes off of Jesus for a moment. And he sees the wind, and he becomes scared again. He sees the waves, and hears the wind, and he begins to sink. And I think this is a, parallels a little bit what we experience in our walk with Jesus, is that the world starts happening. Life starts happening. Things get thrown at you left and right, whether it's work, social friends, whatever it may be, and we get distracted. Use me an example again. Deployment ends. Now, I love Sarah. Love her to death. And Don't take this the wrong way, but on deployment, there weren't many distractions. 
there was me, my guys, and stay alive. Which you guys are like, well, stay alive is kind of a big deal. But honestly, my deployment wasn't as bad as some other people's deployments. But when I came home, Sarah was pregnant. Our son was set to be born. And we were having some medical issues with that. Boom, right out the gate, I'm already distracted. We have Samuel. There he is, now 12 years old. Almost as handsome as his dad. Um, <laughs> kidding. And uh, I have the realization that, oh, snap. i got to get a better job because now I have three mouths that feed besides myself in the home. Time to step up and be a man. Career change. State police happens. So I'm home for a whopping four months, five months, and I leave again for essentially six more months. I get to come home on the weekends, but I'm gone again. And you're, I'm bombarded. With, it's like boot camp all over again with the state police. So I got academics. I got training and exercises I got to do. I come home on the weekends, and Sarah thinks that I just got hit with a Mack truck sometimes. And uh, life just started happening so quick. I still love Jesus. I still believed in him. I still knew who he was. Just my eyes weren't always on him. And I was becoming distracted. And you can ask Sarah. And when I started getting involved with the state police, she's told me, she said, Chris, you're not the same. You're not the same person that I married. Not in a complete bad way. Don't take it like, oh my gosh, you're a terrible human being. But she's like, things have changed. You don't have that same fervor for Jesus like you did when we first met. Because that's what attracted Sarah to me, believe it or not, is my fervor for Jesus. Like, I was a charismatic Christian. I think Jimmy used to go to the same church as me. Ask him. I was in the front, jumping up and down, screaming, hollering, running. I mean, there was nothing holding me back. Sarah's like, you're just not the same. Now, there's some maturity that comes along, and some things change. Like, my back hurts now. I ain't jumping up and down. Okay, that's not happening today. That's not happening today. But... I got a crazy statistic. Now, Tracy has shared these with you guys before about um, social media and stuff, but I, this is a recent study. It says that the average American consumes eight hours and 14 minutes of digital media on a daily basis. That's crazy. Now, let me, let me just be a little open here. I, I read that statistic literally yesterday. And my phone has this thing called digital well-being, and yours probably has it as well. And I got into it. And I'm not going to tell you all the statistics, but I will tell you one that I remember. It said on the, that day that I looked at specifically, I'd unlocked my phone 56 times. Some of you guys are like, ooh, that sounds like a lot. That is, that is a lot. 56 times I unlocked my phone. Now, what I did on those 56 different times I unlocked my phone, whether it's answering a phone call, text message, probably watched YouTube, uh, you know, played a game, or whatever it might be, social media. I love Facebook Marketplace. Get great deals on there. Um, 56 times I unlocked my phone. And then I was sitting there thinking, I was like, I wonder how many times I unlocked my phone and read my Bible on there. And if I'm being honest with you, probably that day, because I don't know what day it was, I probably didn't. Not once. How many times did I open my Bible that day? I know I didn't, because I'm a, technically I'm a millennial, and we use everything digital these days. You guys remember the days when they say, hey, turn with me too, and you hear ruffling of papers in the church, whenever, yeah. I, used to, I grew up in a Nazarene church, and we would hear that, and uh, it's not a sound you hear much anymore. You say, turn with me, and everybody's like, which is fine. At least you got your Bible. I'm happy with it. So. so even on top of that, on top of that eight hours and 14 minutes, Americans average one hour and 47 minutes of general TV watching. 
And that doesn't include Sundays when football happens, right? You got, you got at least four hours right there, if not eight, okay? Oh, and real quick, um, please pray for the Purdue fans. They are terribly brokenhearted today. Go IU, go Hoosiers. Where's my Purdue fans at? They're over here somewhere, aren't they? They're, yeah, yeah. Half the clan's missing. Oh, Sarah doesn't count. We are a house divided. Annie, bless her heart, is going to grow up and be a veterinarian. I'm going to have to succumb to Purdue as being her college one day. But anywho, I did watch the IU game last night. It was tense. So I spent two hours last night watching television. So let me ask you this. When it comes to your faith, imagine out of that potential. Now, I give you guys credit. Crossroads is better than everybody else. We don't spend eight hours on our phones and devices. Uh, we don't spend two hours watching television on a daily basis, right? Right? Yeah. Okay. The younger ones are like, I might spend close to five or six hours on my phone. But um, imagine if you took 30 minutes, 30 minutes out of your day, whether it's the beginning, which Sarah is amazing at that. I am a terrible morning person, and I get up, and I'm like rushing out the door because I wait to the last minute to go to work. Sarah, though, she's up two hours before me doing Bible studies, drinking coffee. I can smell it in the bedroom, and I'm like, close the door. It's waking me up. And, uh, <laughs> but imagine you took 30 minutes to an hour and just spent time with Jesus, whether that's praying reading the scriptures, or just listening to worship music, just taking a moment, 10 minutes, start at 10, start at 1, just start giving Jesus some of your time in the day, and you will see a revival of your faith. A revival of your faith can be done very easily. To be honest with you, again, very candid, I spent a lot of time in scripture over the last 48 hours. Okay, a lot, a lot more than I normally do. And I tell you what, it's just like so refreshing. Like, I don't know why I do this more often. Like, why am I not in my word more? Like, it was so refreshing. Thank you, Pastor, for holding me accountable. All right, our second topic, and I love this one. Now, this could be a whole, whole message in itself. But a revival in love. Let me ask you this. Do you want to see a revival in your marriage? Do you want to see a revival in a broken relationship, whether it be a mom, a dad, I fell in that boat hard. A revival with friendships, you had an old friend, you guys got bitter at one another and separated, whatever reason it might be. Or maybe it's not even that close of a friendship, but you need a revival with your boss, a coworker, something of that nature. What about a revival in your personal character? Which is probably where half of those other issues in relationships stem from, honestly. Sarah and I, sometimes we do counseling with people, and the first thing I ask the person when they start complaining about another person, I was like, what about you? What, what have you done wrong? And they're like, well, I don't know, what have you done wrong? I had to come to this, this, this table one day, and Sarah and I were getting marriage counseling. By the way, Sarah and I are doing well, but we always want to make our marriage better, so we get counseling from time to time just to make our marriage stronger. I almost said wedding. Are we having another wedding? No? Okay trying to make our marriage stronger. So uh, they said, what about you? And I'm like, what do you mean, what about me? She's the one that, no, Chris, you. What is wrong with you? And I was like, oh, man. Started peeling back those layers. I'm like, oh, man, I messed up. I need to work on this. I need, I need more compassion, more patience, more of this. And you'll hear it in a moment, but like, I had flaws that needed fixed. So let's read. You guys know this scripture. I guarantee you know it. Know it. Note it. Is note a real word? Where's my teachers at? They're like, uh, Chris, that's not vocabulary at all. Um, I'm going out of the NIV on this one. See, here I am as a millennial playing with my cell phone, even though it's right in front of me. But love is patient. 
Love is kind. It does not envy and it does not boast, and it is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, it always trusts, always hopes, and always perseveres. Last night, Sarah made fun of me. She was walking through here, and she goes, why do you keep saying always? I'm like, it's because what the scripture says. And she's like, oh, okay. Just thought you were repeating yourself. And I was like, I was. Don't judge me. No, I'm kidding. So verse 4, it says, love is patient and love is kind. Personal character. Love is patient, love is kind. I am not patient. I am like the least patient person in the world. Road rage? Yep. If you're in front of me and you're going slow, actually I feel guilty now these days because if you don't know this, we're living in the parsonage and we leave the church and I'm, sometimes I'm like, I'm probably behind somebody that goes across roads and I just blew their doors off passing them because they're going <laughs> 54 instead of 55. And uh, I'm not patient, ask my kids. I'm not angry, but I do get stern with them from time to time because Chris loses his patience. Uh, personal character, revival there, right? Love is kind. I have to work on that from time to time. Who, who's a parent here? Most of us are, right? Yeah. Is there anybody here that's not a parent besides the teenagers? We've got a couple. There's like four hands, five hands maybe. Wow, that's awesome. But we need more young people. Let's go recruit. Go to colleges. Bring them in. Love is kind. Uh, how many times have you looked at your kids and you're just like, oh, man, you're lucky I love Jesus today. I tell you what. <laughs> you're lucky I love Jesus. Amen. Right? You've had those moments. Good job. You're convicted, and you love Jesus, and he's kept your heart right. Love does not envy, it does not boast, and it is not proud. Now, something God brought up to me about this one, and I thought this was a really incredible uh, parallel. of Love is not jealous. Love is not jealous. What about jealousy? This is what was brought to me, and it's a great one. What about jealousy of the gifts of the Spirit? I know that's a little deep, but think about it for a second. As a Christian in your personal character, you can sometimes get easily defeated in your walk because you see somebody that is a really amazing prayer. Prayer. Can't even say that right. Or you see somebody who can prophesy or speak in tongues or interpret tongues. Uh, you see somebody who can preach or teach or Pastor Tracy's uh, compassion is incredible. You're not going to find somebody with more compassion than Pastor Tracy. And sometimes in our walk with our, in our faith, we, we become disheartened because, like, why am I not like that person? Why don't I have the same love for Jesus as that person? Why is that person getting a blessing from God and I'm not? It's jealousy. And the enemy's like, hey, look what he's getting, look what you're not getting. But if we have love in our personal character, if we are built around love and foundationally on love, that means nothing because... As the scripture goes on, we will persevere towards whatever the shortcoming may be. I'm, I'm going, I'm quick, I promise. We'll, get, we'll beat the Baptists to the buffets, I promise. All right. We're getting there. And I'll get my Nazarene nap in as well, so. All right, verse 5, it says, it does not dishonor. This is a good one. Love does not dishonor. In other words, you ain't gossiping. Behind or to somebody's face, you're not being disrespectful. It's easy to sit at work and be like, well, that coworker's terrible. Or, here's a good one, and I've fell on this one before, and I have to put myself in check. You call a buddy and be like, my wife is awful today. Let me tell you how bad she is. All right, she's crazy. 
All right. Who's done that? Uh, don't raise your hands. But hypothetically, <laughs> rhetorically, who's done that? Wives on the same note, you call your girlfriends or whatever you call them these days, like, my husband is horrible. Now, there's a, there's a time to, to vent and get true biblical guidance. But there's also a difference between just gossiping, okay, and then being disrespectful to somebody's face-to-face. That's not love. That is not love, okay? You're not self-seeking, so you're not selfish. You're not always trying to find an angle whenever you make a decision to help somebody out. Help people out just because you love people, okay? All right, don't be like, hey, buddy, I'm going to come over and help you fix your car, but there's no buts. Just go help them fix the car. Be like Jesus. If you can't fix a car, go wash it. I don't know. I just recently learned how to uh, fix vehicles. Funny story. <laughs> Sarah and I first got married. I replaced the tire on her vehicle. And two problems with that day. One, she had put the lug nuts on before me, and I couldn't get the lug nuts off. She's very strong. Found that out early in my marriage. That's part of massage therapy school that she went to. Second thing was, she starts driving down the road. <laughs> I'm so ashamed. And the tire fell off. Yeah, yeah, so Chris learned early how to work on vehicles a little bit better, and through time I've grown in that. But anyways, funny story, just thought of it, so don't mind that. Um, It's not easily angered. How about some self-control and self-discipline? We talked about that just recently with uh, being kind. Kind goes hand in hand. Slow yourself down, take a breath, walk away. And my favorite, I love this one. Love keeps no record of wrongs. Love keeps no record of wrongs. All right, I literally wholeheartedly believe this, that when you withhold forgiveness or you don't accept somebody's apology, you're placing yourself and them in a spiritual bondage. Well, what's that mean? That means if you love Jesus, you'll get conviction on your heart. I'm going to use my, my family as an example again. Um, I had a lot of hate and discontent for some of my family members. I love them. Every one of them are great. I, they really are today. I'm telling you. Things have changed. But there was a moment when I just could not love them. Could not. Could not love them. And God convicted me. He's like, if you love me, how are you not loving my children? I'm just like, but God, do you know what they did? Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. If you're going to be like Jesus, you're going to love like Jesus. I had to sit down face to face and confront the issues that were before us, say I'm sorry, at the same time accept responsibility for my shortcomings, and ask for their forgiveness. And man, You want to talk about chains falling off. There was a revival in that relationship with my family. And I'm telling you, we're closer now than we ever have been. Ever have been. Now, that's my story on that one a little bit. You probably have your own people that you may be holding a grudge against or unforgiveness or not accepting forgiveness from. Like, you know what? They did me wrong. Forget them. And it might even be an old neighbor from 20 years ago. But still, some of you are sitting here thinking like, man... Yeah, there's that one person I haven't forgiven. My neighbor cut his grass line just inside of my line, and that's made me mad since day one. That's my yard to cut and messed up my whole lines. Literally, I've heard that one happen before. Don't mess with people's grass cutting lines, okay? Right, men? Where's my guys at? Tyler does really good lines, by the way. So um, find somebody out there that you are holding in spiritual bondage. I, I literally think it keeps people from growing in their faith. It really does. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, and always perseveres. I like that, always perseveres. You can do it. You ask Jesus, 
to help you. You read his word and understand who he is, the example that he set, and we mimic that. You can do it. So just imagine for a minute what a true revival would look like if you individually began to love like Jesus. What would you look like? How would people see a difference in you and your personal character in your life? Talk about the pillars of revival. The first one is going to be you. There's no revival without revival in us, in our hearts, in our spirits. So where's my youth kids at? There's a couple in here. There's a few, yeah. I don't know if you've seen this before. So I'm going to put something on the slide here in a second. We're going to take those same verses we just did. Go ahead and throw that up here for me, please. You look at this. I took the word love and it is out of it and put your own name in it. Chris is patient. Sarah's laughing. Chris is kind. Chris does not envy. Chris does not boast. Chris is not proud. Chris does not dishonor others. Chris is not self-seeking. Chris is not easily angered. A lot of Chris's. Chris keeps no record of wrongs. Chris does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. And Chris always protects, always trusts, always hopes, and always perseveres. It's a little more convicting when you throw your own name in it. You realize quickly what, you, what your shortcomings are in love. Guess what? We're already getting close to closing. How cool is that? We are going to beat the Baptist today. All right, so if we want revival, it starts with us, right? Individually. We must spark the revival in our walk first before we can spark the revival in the church, in our communities, and in our region. So I have four action points that I think we can work on to help us with that. Number one is believe. Without believing, there's no revival. To revive something means there has to be something already present to be revived. So if you don't have belief in, in God, in Jesus, that he died for our sins, was buried and rose three days later, there's nothing to revive. But if you today are here and you're seeking God and want to give your heart to him, there's a, you've just laid the groundwork for a revival. Two, obey his commands. I think it's important that we understand the word of God and the scriptures Read it, learn it, ingrain it in our hearts, and apply it to our lives. What good is it to read the Bible that then not apply it? You say you're a Christian, people need to see it on your daily walk. Love like Jesus. Man, if you just love like Jesus, it makes your walk so much easier. People will know who, you're, who Christ is. They'll know that you're a Christian. That's how I led people in the Marines to Jesus was by example, not by hitting them with the Bible and telling them they're, they're sinners for not coming to church. And then pray. Communicate with the Father. How are you going to know the Father if you don't talk to him? If you're married in here, imagine your marriage and what it's like if you never talk to your spouse. I heard something like, oh my goodness. My wife tells me I don't talk to her enough. Uh, come to the Father with your problems. Come to him with your rejoices. Rejoices? Your praises. Come to him with everything. I tell Sarah everything. I tell her my good, my bad, how my workday went, how my workday didn't go, what didn't happen. I talk to Sarah. It's made our marriage so much stronger. So just imagine how much stronger your relationship with the Father would be if you would just communicate with him more than once a week on Sunday morning. Now, a lot of you probably do that a lot more than that, but communicate with the Father. So I'm going to tell a story in closing here. And some of you may have heard it before, some of you may not, and I may get it slightly wrong. And I can't tell you that the, uh, 
what century it was in, but there was a school of college students at a Bible school, and they went to see John Wesley's um, home. Now, John Wesley, he, he was the founder of the Wesleyan Church, and he laid a lot of foundation for what we teach and learn about in, in the church today and different things. So they go into the house of John Wesley, and uh, they go into his kitchen, his living room. They go into his office space where there's just books, and you still have notepads on the table where he's taking notes and everything. Pretty cool. And then they go upstairs, and they go to the living quarters, and um, they go into his bedroom. He got his bed there. He got a lamp, nightstand, whatever it was. But on the side of the bed, on the floor in the carpet, two imprints from where John Wesley prayed for revival. His imprints were on the floor. And the teacher was telling the students about how John Wesley prayed so much that his knees left their imprints on the floor. And first of all, I'm trying to imagine how much time I'd have to spend on my knees to get imprints on my carpet floor. That's a lot of time. You've moved a couch before, and those imprints are gone in about two days. And those couches sat there for a couple years. So for him to leave imprints on the floor with his knees, that's a lot of time. So the students leave, and uh, they go down to the bus, and they all get on the bus, and the teacher's counting, one, two, three, four. What notices what student's missing. Teacher goes back inside the house and looking for the student. Goes to the kitchen office, no one's there, goes upstairs, and in the bedroom, looks across the room, there's a student in the, knees, in the spots of the knees praying. And he hears the student say, God, if you've done it before, you can do it again. Do it again. And the student says, God, if you did it before, you can do it again and use me. And his arms are outstretched. Use me and do it again. And the teacher walks over and puts his hand on the student and says, Billy Graham, it's time to go. Amen. And you all know where Billy Graham went. He's got Franklin Graham now in his footsteps. And no, I'm not saying we all can go out there and be Billy Graham's, but we all can't be Jesus either, but we can be Jesus to somebody. And that starts with the revival in our hearts. Amen.